Amen. Good morning. You may be seated. This morning we will read together from Acts chapter 18, uh, specifically starting in verse 18. So please meet me there uh, in your own Bibles. Um, Also a quick reminder that we will participate in communion with each other as a church family after the sermon. And so if you have uh, not grabbed one of those communion cups on the way in that were set out on the tables out in the hallway, uh, I'd encourage you to go and grab one of those before the end of our time today so that you can participate with us together. Um, for those of you who may not know me, my name is Mike Kazarowski. I serve as the lead pastor here at FAC. Uh, I am always eager to meet new people, and so please uh, feel free to come up and say hello afterwards. I would love to meet you if we haven't yet. Um, if you are newer to FAC, I feel the need to catch you up a little bit about where we've been the last couple of years. Uh, we actually began working through the book of Acts all the way back in January of uh, 2020, and Uh, Just a little over a year ago, through just some thoughtful prayer and consideration, I decided that we just needed to take a break and turn our attention to 2 Corinthians, Um, and and that was to the dismay of some of you. I promised that we would come back to the book of Acts and and finish it, and so here we are. Um, We we just completed 2 Corinthians shortly before the Easter season and then turned our attention to Isaiah appropriately for Easter, and uh, now we come back to Acts right where we left off uh, about 13 months ago. Uh, And my hope and intention, uh, barring any kind of major disruption, is that we'll finish it at some point this year. Um, If you're familiar with the book of Acts, it was written by a a guy named Luke. He was a travel companion of Paul. Um, He's the same man that wrote the gospel of Luke. And so we can actually consider Acts as a really a second volume of Luke's account of Jesus. Um, you could essentially take the Gospel of Luke and you could take the book of Acts and you could put them together and it would form one long orderly account of historical events. It would be a single continuous work. Um, and we get an idea about what the book of Acts is all the way back in Acts chapter 1 where, the Luke, where Luke is writing to his reader, uh, a man named Theophilus who's inquired about Jesus. And uh, Luke tells him in the first chapter of the book of Acts, he he refers to his prior work. He tells him that in his first book, he's referring to the gospel of Luke. In the first book, um, he, he dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach, which implies that the book of Acts is the account of what Jesus continued to do and teach. Even though in Acts 1, Jesus ascends into heaven and currently, even to this day, sits at the right hand of the Father in glory and exaltation, his work is not finished. Although he is not with us physically, he continues to work specifically through the Holy Spirit. And so to put it simply, the book of Acts is the historical account of how the good news of Jesus spread throughout the world by the power of the Holy Spirit. And one of the main characters that the Spirit uses to accomplish this, especially in the second half of Acts, is the Apostle Paul. And 13 months ago, we left Paul in the city of Corinth, um, right near the tail end of his second major missionary journey. And that is where we pick up this morning with Paul in Corinth. And so if you will, uh, please follow along with me in your Bibles as we read from verse 18 of Acts 18. We'll read through the end of the chapter here. 
After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Sancreia, he cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Let's pray. And Father, this morning, what we know not, teach us. What we are not, make us. And what we have not, give us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Lately, I've seen a commercial on TV advertising a newer um, cooking competition show. Um, I'm I'm not as much interested in cooking shows, uh, but the commercial did have me a little bit curious because it seemed different. Uh, Apparently, the, the whole premise of the show is that there are a group of chefs competing in cooking challenges for a cash prize, uh, like you would see in a normal cooking show. Um, But among the chefs, unbeknownst to the other contestants, there is a saboteur. There is a rat in the kitchen seeking to secretly sabotage everybody else. And that's the name of the show, Rat in the Kitchen. And the goal is to figure out who is the rat in the kitchen, who is sabotaging um, these other chefs. Now, if you've been around me long enough, you know that I often compare preaching to that of preparing and serving a meal. This is not my own analogy. This is an illustration that I heard uh, some time ago from another pastor uh, and it has just stuck with me. I really like it because I really like food, um, like a lot. I love to eat. It's my favorite hobby. Um, a pastor's main responsibility is to feed the sheep that God has entrusted under his care. And you feed people spiritually by preaching God's word. Now, now, for those of us who are consuming the spiritual meals prepared for us, it is absolutely essential that believers, young and old, are able to spot and identify the rat in the kitchen. Because there are many out there who are preachers or claim to be preachers, yet whether they even realize it or not, 
are, are either at best just poor preachers, bad preachers, or at worst, actually sabotaging the spiritual meal prep. In, in one of the many ways that you can spot and identify such preachers is by examining and knowing what makes a good preacher, what makes an effective preaching ministry. And that is actually what is uh, presented to us in the text this morning in the form of a man named Apollos. If you're familiar with 1 Corinthians, the letter to the Corinthians from Paul, you know that Apollos would prove to be very influential and very effective, uh, a very effective pastor in the church in Corinth. He built upon Paul's work there. Paul talks about how he had planted seeds in Corinth and then Apollos came in and, and watered. And as a result, God is the one who brought, uh, who, who brought spiritual growth um, Apollos continued Paul's work there, so much so that he almost gained um, the, the similar status as Paul in the eyes of the Corinthians, where there, there was actually division in the church that Paul was addressing in 1 Corinthians. He's saying, some people say they follow me, some people follow Apollos, but get your stinking eyes on God, because he's the one that's making this all work. Uh, but from that, we, we see uh, how important of a figure that Apollos became and how effective he was as a pastor. But before he ever gets to Corinth, we find him here. We're introduced to him here in Ephesus. Um, this is the first time where we meet him. And um, he and his preaching is described at length. And what we see here are some keys to effective Bible teaching and preaching. These are five characteristics uh, that, that we see in this profile of Apollos that are necessary in the life of a preacher. They're not everything that a preacher should be. This isn't an exhaustive list, but it is a really good start. Who he is and how he conducts himself and how he conducts his work is what we should look for in the spiritual chefs that are preparing spiritual food for us. Um, before we get to Apollos, I feel the need to briefly mention verses 18 through 23. I don't want to just disregard these as a whole. Um, these verses are here simply to describe uh, how Paul finishes out his second missionary journey and how it came to an end. Um, once again, at this point, Paul is in Corinth. And after his time was up, he decided to set sail to the province of Syria. Uh, I've got a map up on the screen which shows you uh, actually the complete route of Paul's second missionary journey. Um, right now where we began our text, Paul is on the west side of that map in Corinth. Uh, and, and when he uh, leaves Corinth, he leaves through a co Corinthian port about seven miles southeast of Corinth called uh, Sancreia. And um, you'll see it on the map there. We're told this strange detail uh, that while he was in Sancreia, Paul actually cut his hair uh, because he was under a vow. It's a fairly obscure uh, detail, and, and, and commentators have offered a lot of different thoughts and opinions about why he did this. We don't really have a clear answer, um, so we're not going to make much of it this morning. Uh, the, the vow was most likely just a, a part of a Jewish practice or a Jewish discipline um, as a way for Paul to almost demonstrate his, his trust in God from something that either had already happened or something that was going to happen. Um, then from Sancreia, Paul sets sail from Corinth, and we see that he actually brings Aquila and Priscilla with him. 
Uh, if, you, if you need a reminder about who these people are, these, this was a Jewish Christian married couple who met Paul during his time in Corinth early on. Uh, we got to remember that Paul, to this point, uh, had been imprisoned and chased out of several cities in the Macedonian region, which is the northwest of that map. And so by the time he arrives in Corinth, the man is just absolutely beaten. He is battered. He is, he is at the end of his rope. He is just spent. But he finally finds some respite in Corinth. And a large part of that was because of Aquila and Priscilla. This married couple befriends Paul and takes him in, and they provided so much care and so much support for him. Um, And we actually see this about this married couple throughout all of Scripture, that they are always encouraging, always taking people in, always uh, opening up their house for church gatherings. Uh, They're just solid people. And they grew so close to Paul that we see in verse 18 that they accompany Paul uh, on his journey as they leave Corinth. Um, I think the original intent was that they would go to Syria with him, um, but we see plans change in in the latter verses. They make a pit stop in Ephesus. Um, Paul does some uh, ministry in the local synagogue, which was his pattern, and Paul leaves such an impression that the the Jewish people in the synagogue actually want him to stay. And, And then for reasons unknown to us, he actually declines Uh, But if we read in between the lines, it seems as though that a ministry opportunity presented itself so much in Ephesus that as a result, Priscilla and Aquila actually stay behind in Ephesus to continue Paul's work that he started in that city. And then we see on the map and through the text that Paul finishes his his journey. In uh, verse 22, he lands in Caesarea, uh, which is there on the map on the east side of the Mediterranean Sea. Then it says that he went up and greeted the church. Um, we don't know 100% sure of the church, but most people agree that this is probably the church in Jerusalem. Uh, he makes a quick pit stop there, says hello, waves, and then he finally travels uh, back up north to Antioch in Syria, which is where his second missionary journey began, uh, all, all the way back in Acts 15, if you're tracking with me. Um, verse 23 is interesting because then it mentions that Paul from Antioch traveled back through the regions of Galatia and Phrygia. He essentially retreads ground from his second missionary journey in order to strengthen the disciples. This verse is actually recognized as the start of what we would call his third main missionary journey, which we're going to revisit uh, because, the Luke, because Luke, as the author of Acts, actually does something very interesting in verse 24. Um, Luke wanted to record the rest of Paul's journey. He wanted to put a nice, uh, tie a nice bow on it uh, so that we see the completion of his missionary journey. But then he does what a filmmaker would call a cutaway shot, right? If you're watching a movie or watching a television show, you're typically following a main narrative. You're following a story. You're following a, a main character, Uh, which in the book of Acts at this point is the Apostle Paul. In his many journeys, we've been following him. uh, And then all of a sudden, there's this cutaway shot in a movie where viewers are taken away from the main narrative. They're taken away from the uh, main character, and they're given a peek into what is happening somewhere else. 
Luke breaks off from Paul's story so that we can get a peek at what happened back in Ephesus. This is very much a meanwhile in Ephesus uh, type verse. Now, now Ephesus will prove to be a critical location for Paul's third missionary journey. And so, so Luke, as an author, is actually intentionally setting up the scene. He's setting the stage and preparing the reader for Paul's work there. And as I mentioned earlier, Apollos becomes a pretty important figure in Paul's ministry. So Luke wants to make sure that we as the reader know who Apollos is and where he came from and what he's all about. And that's where we'll spend the rest of our time this morning is looking at Apollos in this cutaway scene. Um, We're introduced to Apollos as this incredibly gifted and effective preacher. And Luke gives us some insight as to why this is the case. Once again, as I mentioned, there's five key items that I see here. And uh, once again, these are not the only characteristics that make up a gifted and effective preacher, but they are all important and it's a good place to start. All preachers should strive for these and all congregants should look for these in, in the people that are feeding them spiritually and uh, we'll work through all five of them in the order that the text gives them. And so um, starting in verse 24, uh, first we see that Apollos was an eloquent man, an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures, and that he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. Or, or in other words, he was taught the things that, that Jesus taught. In these opening verse and a half, the, the combination of these opening phrases which describe Apollos, could really be summarized in in that he was a learned man. That that word eloquent can actually mean learned, that he was educated, that he knew his stuff, that he was sharp. And, And a key part of this characteristic was not just that he was educated, but more importantly, that he was educated in the way of the Lord. He was competent specifically in the scriptures. It's not that he was an egghead, that he had just a bunch of knowledge. He probably did, but there's a distinction here that he had a bunch of knowledge about the scriptures. You see, there are many brilliant people in the world who are educated and knowledgeable that you do not want in the pulpit. You need the ones who are at least educated or intelligent in the scriptures, competent in the scriptures. Now, the reason Apollos was so sharp probably had to do much with his upbringing. But by God's providence and sovereignty, he prepared Apollos for years before he ever stepped into ministry. We're we're told uh, a little bit about his upbringing, that he was a native of Alexandria, that he was born and brought up in Alexandria, and he grew up there before ever even coming to Ephesus and preaching. Um, Alexandria was like the intellectual capital of the world in the first century. At the time, it was the second largest uh, city in the Roman Empire, and the entire city was built with a focal point of this ginormous uh, museum and a library that had over 400,000 works of literature, 400,000 volume library. If Ivy League schools in our day could be embodied into a city, Alexandria would be it. 
There were more educational opportunities there than most anywhere else in the world at the time. So Apollos' mind would have been cultivated by some of the finest Hebrew and Greek thinkers in Alexandria, and this would have had influence in his own understanding of Scripture. By God's sovereignty, Apollos is placed in a situation where he had the opportunity to get this formal education. Now, while that is the case, what's important to note here is not that Apollos has a formal education. The emphasis here is just that he was educated. And how you get that education is not as important. While Apollos was formally educated, There are a variety of examples from Scripture of men who were not formally educated, but were still competent in the Scriptures. The the prime example of this is the apostles, Peter and John, all the way back in Acts chapter 4. If you recall that story, they've just recently healed um, a, a lame man. They preach a sermon in what's called Solomon's Portico, and this stirs up enough strife among the temple officials uh, that they're summoned to speak in front of the the council, the Jewish council, uh, which is like the the priests, the governing leaders of the Jewish community. And and then um, Peter and John essentially preach to them, and, and, and they come off as knowing their stuff, so much so that the council is kind of taken aback, they're shocked because they look at them and say, wait a minute, aren't these uneducated common men? Who are these guys that they would be so knowledgeable? Because they've never had a formal education. But the truth of the matter is, is that while they never had a formal education, they walked with Jesus, living side by side with him for three years daily. And they had an instructor in Jesus on an informal basis that no seminary could ever top. And so if you feel called into um, specifically pastoral ministry, you have to hit the books, whether it be formal or informal. And if you push back and tell me, well, God doesn't call the qualified, I would agree with you. But then I would remind you the second half of that popular saying that while God does not call the qualified, he certainly qualifies the called. And that does not happen overnight. It could take years. And as a part of any calling into Christian ministry, there must be some level of education. God will equip you if he has called you. And once again, this is exactly what happened with the disciples, unqualified men who were called into ministry and then for three years were equipped by Jesus before they were mobilized, before they were ever handed the reins of ministry responsibility on their own. Apollos was a learned man. He knew his stuff. It's the first thing that we see in the passage. Second, verse 25, he was fervent in spirit. He was fervent in spirit. George Whitfield, he's one of the most prolific preachers of all time. 
um, pre- preached in the 1700s, and, and it said that Benjamin Franklin really enjoyed hearing George Whitfield preach. And here's the reason why. This is an exact quote. Franklin said of Whitfield that, that he would love to hear Whitfield preach because before his own eyes, he could watch a man burn. He could watch a man on fire before his very own eyes. Uh, the, the word fervent in verse 25, it literally means to be hot or to boil. And it's most often used um, in the original language in reference to boiling water. And I find the illustration of boiling water is, is helpful here because we're reminded that water boils only when an outside element has been introduced to the water. Water does not boil in and of itself. It can't boil in and of itself. Water does not boil under its own capability. It cannot boil under its own nature, under its own molecular structure. There has to be something outside of the water itself introduced to it in order to make it boil. The element of heat must be applied. And then and only then is when the water boils. And we see that the boiling point is merely an expression of something that has happened inwardly to the water. In the same way, being fervent in spirit is not something that one can fabricate on their own. This is not something that you can create, but something that is done within you which then expresses itself outside of you. Fervency in the biblical sense is more than anything that you could ever manifest or manipulate on your own. And so let's not get confused here. To preach fervently in spirit does not mean that one has to have a vibrant personality. It does not mean that one has to to change the range of their voice or kind of put on some kind of show that they're passionate and that they're excited. No, a a vibrant personality and the ability to communicate serve as an asset to the preacher. But fervency in spirit comes from the confidence in the truth and power that we proclaim. And this can only happen if one is ignited by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the heat element that is introduced and lights a preacher on fire. Apollos preached with a sense of passion and a sense of conviction that what he said was true and what he said was beautiful and what he said was life-changing if the hearers would merely receive it through the Holy Spirit. One should be able to listen to a preacher and sense if the man truly believes the doctrine that he preaches. And there is an important marriage between the two, an important link between doctrine and fervency. They ought not be separated because the results are devastating when they are. Um, John Calvin's commentary on this passage, he actually points out the importance of this marriage between doctrine and fervency. Uh, this is often misquoted, and so I'm gonna, I promise you I'll get it right. Calvin says that doctrine without zeal 
Doctrine without zeal is either like the sword in the hand of a madman, or else it lies still as cold and without use. He continues on, Therefore, that doctrine shall be unsavory, which is not joined without zeal. But let us remember that Luke put the knowledge of the Scripture in the first place, which must be the moderation of zeal. For we know that many are fervent without consideration. Therefore, let knowledge be present that it may govern zeal. That is Calvin's commentary on this passage. And his point is this. If you have a spirit ignited with passion, without competency in the Scriptures, as Apollos did, then you're dangerous. But if you have competency in the scriptures, without this spirit-birthed, ignited fervency in the the spirit, then it's pointless. Then there's, it's just, you're wasting your time. Biblical knowledge amounts to a pile of rubbish, if not attended to by a spirit-birthed zeal. Apollos had both, and he knew the marriage between them well. Apollos knew his stuff. He was fervent in spirit. And then continuing in verse 25, he spoke and taught accurately the the things concerning Jesus. That's the third characteristic that we're looking at. If, If scripture is like a sword then Apollos was not only in possession of the sword with his biblical knowledge, but he knew how to wield it, right? Because being able to teach accurately is much different than having merely a biblical knowledge and a fervent spirit, right? Like a surgeon in the operating room, the good doctor has studied. The doctor is competent, But as soon as they take up the scalpel in hand, you better hope that they are accurate. All of their knowledge means nothing if they cannot execute a surgery accurately. You you do not want to sit under the knife of a surgeon who does not know how to navigate the delicate precision of surgery. And you do not want to sit under a preacher who does not know how to navigate the delicate precision precision of preaching. And there are far too many who are far too loose in their handling of Scripture. They don't know how to wield it. They don't know how to wield it accurately. And accuracy with the Scripture can be the difference between solid doctrine and straight-out heresy. So Apollos taught accurately. His handling of Jesus' teaching was careful, and it was precise. And because Apollos taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, it's fairly safe to assume that Apollos is indeed a believer at this point. He is a true Christian. Some don't think that he is, um, but, but Luke wouldn't probably say that Apollos was accurate if he wasn't a believer. The reason some people think that he might not have been a true believer is because of what happens next in the passage, in the second part of verse 25. Um, Luke makes mention that while Apollos spoke accurately about Jesus, he only knew about the baptism of John. Um, We're going to come back to this next week 
Uh, we don't have the time to explain what may, might be going on there, and it's, it actually comes back in uh, chapter 19. Um, and so we'll revisit it. But what's important for our time this morning is that while Apollos was indeed knowledgeable, there was a gap in his knowledge. There was some more learning that he, uh, that he needed to, to, to have. Uh, it's not that his preaching was inaccurate. It was accurate. It was just incomplete. All of what he said was true. He didn't say anything wrong, but he needed to go further in his understanding. Once again, there was more growth that was needed. There was more to learn. And this became evident to Paul's partners in ministry, Priscilla and Aquila. And as a preacher myself, I resonate with how Priscilla and Aquila handled the situation. Verse 26 says that they took Apollos aside and they explained the the way of God more accurately. Priscilla and Aquila teach him, but they do so both privately and they do so personally. They they did so privately in that they took him aside. They didn't make it a public matter. They didn't throw Apollos under the bus in front of everyone. They didn't stand up in the middle of the sermon and say, hey, who's this moron that we've given the pulpit? They didn't go out to lunch afterwards and, and, and just put them under the bus in front of everyone. They didn't, they didn't post on social media all the points that Apollos failed in in his own teaching. No, it, it was private. They took him aside. And they also did it personally. They did it face to face. They didn't write him a letter or an email. They didn't slip an anonymous note under his door, they went to him in person and graciously and sensitively and effectively taught him. And we see that that went a long way with Apollos because Apollos was receptive to it, which brings us to the fourth quality that all preachers should strive for. Apollos was teachable. Right, right. Imagine this scenario with me. Apollos, this educated, scholarly, passionate man just delivered this fantastic sermon, absolutely knocked it out of the park, and he was spot on. He was accurate in everything he did. And then two tent makers, of all people, approach him with some constructive criticism. There are not too many people that would handle this very well. This is an assumption on my part, but it seems as though Apollos is more educated and more experienced than Priscilla and Aquila. So how easy would it be for him to just brush them off and say, that's nice, but but I'm the one with experience here. And so I appreciate your words, but I'm just going to disregard it. No, he doesn't do that. He receives what they have to say. He is teachable. And the very root of having a teachable spirit is humility. It's being the first in the room to raise their hand only to say, I do not have all the answers, but I'm eager to learn. You see, it's the ministry leaders who do have all the answers that we need to be weary of because they don't have all the answers. And if they um, give off the appearance that they do, it it only bears testimony to their own pride, which is deadly in the pulpit. But the beauty of the scene before us Right, is that once Priscilla and Aquila fully equip Apollos, then he is actually mobilized in ministry. He, he's shipped off to Achaia with the full blessing and the full support and the full recommendation of the church in Ephesus. And imagine what would have happened if Apollos rejected their criticism. Right? Would they have sent him had things played out differently? 
If Apollos rejected Priscilla and Aquila, would he have gotten the full recommendation? Would he have gotten the letters of support from the disciples in Ephesus? Imagine the type of ministry lost in Corinth had Apollos not been teachable. He's mobilized to Corinth, and it's there that he's able to build and strengthen believers and evangelize the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures, Luke writes, that the Christ was Jesus. And this is the final quality that we should all look for in any preaching ministry. Growing up in Alexandria, there are a lot of things that Apollos could teach about. Depending on his background, he could teach about um, mathematics. He could have taught about literature. He could have taught about history. He could have taught about medicine. He could have taught about philosophy. Many schools of academia he could have taught from, but of all the things that Apollos could have taught, of all the things that his ministry could have been about, what floats to the surface as the main and primary thing? That the Christ was Jesus. That is what consumes Apollos in his ministry, the gospel. And as a side note, how did he teach that the Christ was Jesus? By the scriptures. By opening up God's word and saying, here it is. God's revealed himself through these pages. And the best argument that I'm going to give you that the Christ is Jesus is just by opening up the scriptures and telling you what God has to say for himself. There are many who have asked me where expository preaching is found in the Bible. This is something that I have a firm conviction on. And I'm challenged sometimes in asking, where do you see that in the Bible? If you're unfamiliar, expository preaching, simply put, is exposing the meaning of Scripture, taking the text, opening up God's Word, and letting God's Word determine the subject matter of the sermon. And right here... To answer your question, if you were wondering, as an example of expository preaching, Apollos showed by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. That term, the Christ, it's a title. It was given by the Jews to this anticipated savior of the world who was promised to them by God in previous generations. And by the scriptures, by opening up God's word, Apollos proclaims to them that you don't need to wait any longer because the savior is here and he is alive and he is Jesus. And of all the things that the author of Acts could record about Apollos' preaching and teaching ministry, the main thing that is mentioned is that Jesus is the Christ. The gospel is front and center. Right? The, the gospel of Jesus is not some sort of springboard for Apollos into ministry. It's the whole pool that he swims in. He is consumed by the gospel, and this is what sets out any public speaker apart, right? Because all of these other things, right? Educated, being passionate or fervent in spirit, teaching something accurately, and even being humility. Somebody who's delivering a TED Talk could be all of those things. But what makes us different, what makes Christianity different, what makes preachers different in their message is the gospel, that Jesus is the Savior. And so that is where we swim. That is where we swim. 
It's very similar to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2 when he says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is not to say that this is the only thing that Paul taught, but everything that he did and everything that he taught led to Jesus and was anchored by Christ. One can be a learned man and can teach fervently in the spirit and teach accurately and can be teachable, but it's all in vain if the pastor doesn't preach the gospel. It's all in vain if he doesn't make much about Jesus Christ dying for our sins and rising from the grave in three days to prove and show that there is life in Christ. And Apollos knew this and he engaged in fruitful ministry for years in Corinth. And so for us today, the encouragement is that we need to choose those who feed us wisely. Because without eloquence, your dish will be raw. And without fervency, your dish will be unsavory. And without accuracy, your dish will lack nutrition. Without humility, your dish will never expand beyond the maturity of the chef who provides it. And if the chef offers you a dish other than the gospel of Jesus Christ, you must reject it outright because he has given you poison. And a lifetime of feeding from deficient chefs will only leave you spiritually malnourished, spiritually weak. Choose who feeds you wisely. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and the preaching ministry of many, Lord, who seek to let you speak for yourself, Father. This is such an uncanny uh, responsibility, Father, to to open up your word and and let you speak. And so I pray, Father, for even today, this morning, as many, many pastors have opened up your word, that by your spirit, the the words would impress on people's hearts and their minds and that they would be transformed. We thank you, Father, that you have given us your word and that you have not left us to our own vices. We praise you, Father, that you are mindful of us and that you desire for us to know you and glorify you, and that you have done such through the preaching of your word, through people sharing this good news. Would that mark our ministries here at FAC, Father? Would we swim in the gospel of Christ? And it's in your holy name I pray. Amen.